0: When the U.S. purchased Alaska from Russia in 1867, the official transfer ceremony took place on October 18th in Sitka. On hand were several ships flying U.S. flags, including the USS Resaca, a U.S. naval vessel that had been sent to Alaskan waters, not to observe this significant moment in Alaska history, but because the ship was on quarantine. In
1: 1867, patrolling off of Central America and yellow fever broke out on on both it and the Jamestown and both ships were sent to Alaska um and it it actually on on the Rusaka there were 19 men were killed before it burned itself out and then um the crews of both ships attended the transfer ceremony um it said the Rusaka stayed in the Sitka area for a few months then returned to San Francisco in January 1868 carrying Princess Max Sudoff
0: that's Steve Hendrickson, curator of collections at the Alaska State Museum in Juneau. It is unknown at this time if the crew of the Rosaka infected Alaska natives or others with whom they came into contact with yellow fever, but we do know of other kinds of exchange. Take the rare puffin skin parka on exhibit at the Alaska State Museum. It was acquired by George Cook, the surgeon on board the USS Rosaka. I'm Alaskan historian Angeli Grantham. Welcome to this episode of Alaska Out of the Vault. Today, we'll examine the complex history of this puffin skin parka. Along the way, we'll learn about the patently cruel economic system that early Russian colonizers imposed on the Aleutic and Unangan people of the western Gulf of Alaska. We will hear how women's work was essential to the survival not just of Alaska Native families, but for the provisioning of the Russian American colonies. We will learn about the art of a skin sewing from one of the preeminent craftsmen of this nearly lost art form. Finally, we will consider the possible scenarios that led to this puffin-skin parka ending up on board a yellow fever-infected naval ship. First, let's get a sense of this object that we are discussing. Here, Ellen Carley, conservator at the Alaska State Museum, describes the garment.
2: If I were to give a visual description, the way it's on exhibit here, I would sort of describe the overall design as a T-shape, where the arms kind of, the way it's displayed here, stick out in, in a T, and there are individual pelts of the birds, sort of almost in a grid pattern, and they're side by side by side, and the, what would have been the breast of the bird is more smooth, almost a fur-like looking uh, material, and in between are fluffier feathers and so it almost at a distance looks like fur almost like those ground squirrel pelts that you see on on certain kinds of parkas but when you get up close you can definitely see that they're birds and they're brownish in coloration here and and then when you get around the bottom cuff the bottom trim at the hem and the cuffs around the wrist you see these very vivid deep kind of indigo blue and vivid red and yellow stripes with um, patterns in them
0: since George Cook acquired the parka during the Rasaka's time in Sitka, one would presume that the parka then was a Clinkit garment, but it's not.
2: From the materials that are in this um, parka, it's hard to say whether it would be an Unangan, what used to be called Alut, or a Sugpjak Aluptic because a lot of those species are in both areas, and I think some of the peoples who could make these parkas were in both areas.
0: The Rasaka departed San Francisco in late August of 1867. It spent four months in Alaska. Hundreds of miles of ocean separate Alutic and Unangan lands from Tlingit territory, which is where Sitka is located, and where George Cook and the rest of the crew of the Rosaka witness the lowering of the Russian flag. And get this, no evidence has come to light to show that the Rasaka ever sailed west. So Surgeon Cook did not merely purchase or trade the parka from an Alutik or an Unangan person while sailing through their territories. The parka then made it to Southeast Alaska before the Rasaka arrived. And it is at this turn that the parka becomes a way to examine the history of Russian and Aleutic Unangan relations in the late 18th and early 19th centuries.
1: (laughs) Под державою монархов все россииско гоцаря
0: this Russian ballad tells a story of Russian fur traders who came to Alaska from the town of Arkhangelsk on the Russian White Sea. Russian fur traders first started hunting sea otters in the eastern Aleutian Islands within Unangan territory. The traders headed east along the Aleutian chain, reaching the Alaska Peninsula by the 1760s. The Russians could not match the hunting skills of the Unangan. As a result, the Russians coerced the Unangan to hunt sea otters for them, sometimes paying with goods but often taking hostages in order to assure compliance. As the hunters moved east, the sea otters were exterminated. The Russians with Unangan hunters needed new territory, so they looked to Kodiak. For 20 years, the kodiak Alutik fought off and killed Russian trespassers, but when Grigory Shelikov arrived on the south side of Kodiak Island in 1784, he came intending to establish the first permanent Russian settlement in Alaska, and he knew he had to use force to do so. Through battles, the use of hostages, and the seizing of weapons in boats, and other methods, Shelikov and his cohort of Russian fur traders quickly managed to control the Kodiak region and the labor of the Aleutic people, just as the Russians had done with the Unangan. In 1799, Tsar Paul I issued a charter to Shelikov's company, the Russian American Company. The company had a monopoly on Alaskan trade, and the reason for existing was to hunt furs for the international market. But still, the Russians didn't learn how to hunt sea otters. They forced the Aleutic and Unangan to do their hunting. And the Russians had very few goods to provision themselves, their Unangan and Aleutic hunting parties, or the Russian outposts scattered across Alaska. Sometimes, years would pass without any ships arriving from Russia. As a result, Unangan and Aleutic people became central to the economy of Russian America, not only because they hunted the skins that were the very reason for the company's existence, but they were also responsible for provisioning the Russian-American colonies. Prior to the arrival of the Russians, the Aleutic people called themselves Sukpyak. Russians called both the Unangan and Aleutic people Aleuts, even though the Russians knew that they were two different ethnic groups. Sometimes Russians referred to the Aleutic as Kodiak Aleuts. Due to this generalized description, it is difficult to disentangle who is Aleutic and who is Unangan within the historical record. Moreover, since the homelands of the Aleutic and the Unangan are located in geographically similar zones, they had access to similar materials, as Ellen Carley mentioned, meaning that it can be challenging to distinguish Aleutic goods from Unangan goods. This puffin skin parka is a good case in point. Both of the groups were considered, quote, dependent, according to the system that Russians used to classify their relationships to Alaska's native groups. This meant that the Unankan and Alutic were fully incorporated into the Russian American company's economic system. Add to this that the Russian-American company sent Unangan people to Alutic villages and Alutic people to Unangan villages and both groups on faraway hunting parties, and the historic connections between these two groups become as interlocking as a tightly woven grass basket. Moving forward in this episode, much of the discussion focuses on the Aleutic experience. And while there were many differences in the cultures, societies, and experiences of the Unangan and Aleutic people, Russian-American policies directed at them were pretty much the same.
3: Well, it was when Baranov was going to um, expand his operations into Southeast Alaska, and the Aleutic were his um, sea otter hunters. They were they hunted all along the coast. Um, from the from Cook Inlet to the Gulf of Alaska and then all down the coast in, as far as uh, Sitka and even down as far as Prince of Wales Island. But in addition to being his sea otter hunters, I mean, he would have hundreds of, of uh, kayaks, two-man kayaks and a few three-man kayaks. Um, he relied on those numbers to, um, he hoped to intimidate the peoples they encountered as they were on their sea otter hunting expeditions.
0: That's Catherine Arndt, historian of Russian America and bibliographer at the Rasmussen Library at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. In the early years of the Russian American company, chief manager Alexander Baranov ordered that Aleutic village leaders help conscript all able-bodied men to join the flotilla of kayaks that left each spring to hunt sea otters. Hundreds of Aleutic kayaks, known then by the Siberian word, bydarka. Out across Alaska, down the northwest coast, even making it to California, pursuing sea otters to the verge of extinction. Many of the hunters died along the way.
3: Uh, now the hunting was was on a conscription basis. Every village was, I think, between the ages of 15, I think it was 16, and the age of 50. Um, the men were expected to go out and hunt for the company. Um, younger than that and older than that, they would stay in the village and was you know supposed to take care of the women and kids late left behind and you know do subsistence things. Um, during Baranoff and before Baranoff they would just take every every able bodied man.
0: As the able bodied men were sent on the Sea Otter hunts, back in Kodiak, women were tasked with gathering food, sewing and manufacturing goods that hunters in other villages and colonial outposts would use. The Russian American company controlled the labor of elutic men and women, and the output of that labor. Which brings us back to the puffin skin parka. Like Catherine mentioned, all able-bodied men were required to leave their villages to hunt sea otters. The company had a task for the elderly and ill as well. They were to hunt puffins. And the women, they were to sew puffinskin parkas. What follows is a reading from a report written by Father Gideon, a Russian Orthodox cleric who spent time in Kodiak from 1804 to 1807. This document was translated from Russian by Lydia Black. In what follows, Gideon clearly explains how the Puffins were hunted. You will also note the audacious co-opting of Aleutic labor and technologies into Russian America's colonial economy. I'll interrupt with side notes along the way. Immediately preceding this passage, Gideon describes the Aleutic sea otter hunting parties that were forcibly dispatched across the North Pacific. He picks up by describing what the men not sent to hunt sea otters had to do for the company.
1: Having thus enlisted such people, the company dispatched them to the southern side of Alaska. They are employed in hunting seabirds called Torporki.
0: He means puffins.
1: They are dispatched in groups of twos or threes to small islands and rocks. Each is obligated by the company to obtain a number of birds sufficient for seven parkas. Each parka takes 35 bird skins of this sort. The birds are captured by snares on top of high cliffs and rocky outcroppings. If a rock is unclimbable, ladders are used. Often people fall, damage their not-to-perfect health further, and some even lose their lives. During the hunt, they subsist on the meat of those birds, while the skins are dried. By the middle of July, this hunt stops as the birds, having raised their young, leave their nests. It is then that these laborers are permitted to hunt for themselves up to the middle of September. Step
0: 1. The elderly, infirm, and young men are sent to hunt puffins.
1: Later on, these bird skins are distributed to the women Kayur, who reside at various Artels, as well as to all Kodiak women.
0: Kayurs were prisoners or slaves of the Aleutic, who essentially became property of the Russians after the conquest of Kodiak. When he says Artel, he means Russian outpost. Basically, what he's saying is that the company distributed the puffin skins to women throughout the Kodiak archipelago. These
1: women. Then so parkas, which are later sold to their relatives for the sea otters, the father is dispatched to hunt birds, the son or younger brother to hunt otter. After the birdskins have been taken away, the parkas sown by the men's wives, mothers, and sisters are given out for the otters they themselves hunted.
0: The Sea otter hunters were forcibly sent around the Pacific to hunt for sea otters, while their sons and elders hunted for birds, which were given to Alutic women to turn into parkas, parkas with which the sea otter hunters were then paid for the otters that they killed. Alutic people made a goods that Russians seized and turned into a form of currency. Gideon goes on to describe that if the puffin hunters do not hunt enough birds to fulfill the company assigned quota, plus enough to make his own parka, he owes the company fox furs or is indebted for more puffins the next year. This indebtedness to the company pervaded the economy of Russian America. Here, Catherine Arndt further explains how sea otter hunters were paid for their work and the pelts that they harvested
3: yeah but, so they could they could buy foodstuffs clothing um, manufactured goods um, and also native manufactured goods like like parkas and things like that In they could buy it in the store with the the credits that they got for the furs that they brought back but if the whole party was was unsuccessful they would end up being in debt the company never could collect those debts i mean especially in the Aleutians, they ended up were the kind of very large debts, and the company just ended up canceling them because there was the sea otter population was down and there was just no way no way to pay it off.
0: Note that the sea otter hunt transpired in the spring and summer the time of the salmon run the time to gather food for the coming year with all men engaged in hunting sea otters or puffins the work of gathering food for the families their communities and for the dispatch hunting parties largely fell on the women women who too were tasked with other work. (laughs)
2: School, not weak, A
0: This traditional Alutic song, named These Schooners, relates, quote, These schooners are making me cry because of my boyfriend. What am I going to do afterwards? They are taking my boyfriend away. Each spring, Alutic women said goodbye to virtually all Alutic men and again started back to work for the Russian-American company. Gideon continues.
1: When the berry season sets in, the company force them to collect berries. Those women who cannot fulfill this obligation because of ill health or because they have children at the breast buy the berries from their women friends and deliver these to the company. At the end of the berry gathering, which stops totally in September, the women must face another task. The bird hunters return, and the company distributes to the Aleut wives and daughters in all settlements bird skins to be worked into parkas. They also have other obligatory work. From the whale, sea lion, seal, and bear guts they sew come like us. From the sinews they make weaving strands for seal nets, and they manufacture thread from whale sinews. Thus, almost the entire year these women are employed in company work.
4: The time that they must have put in, and, and no heat, no light, you know, it was all having to, to do daylight time. And, and that wasn't just a Saturday afternoon. They had to do it all the time, because their family needed that clothing for survival.
0: That's Susie Malutin, an elutic artist and skin sewer from Kodiak, reflecting on the work of her female ancestors. Susie has traveled around the world to study elutic objects, and particularly clothing, within museum collections. Susie notes that puffins weren't the only birds used to make parkas. And they, they used not just puffins,
4: but cormorants and seagull parkas. They made seagull parkas. So they could utilize all of those different types of, of birds for parkas. And I'm, there wasn't any restriction at the time. But I also know that when they utilize the puffin or the cormorants um, or any of the other types of of birds they all did it the same way it was very similar in how they prepared that that bird gideon's
0: account leaves off when the puffin skins are distributed to the women of kodiak to turn into parkas here susie describes what the woman would do with the bird skins in order to convert them into the clothing
4: well one of the the ways that i had learned is they would take and and skin the bird And then the women would suck the fat off and then they would either soak them in urine um, or, and continue to wash them and dry them. And then, um, and then utilize primarily the, the upper back portion where the feathers are bright and, and, um, the uh, back portion that was the thicker would be laid out and they would sew them, um, with, with the stitch, with, with the, um, uh, Uh, sinew and it would be sewn on the outside not on the inside but on the outside so the stitching wouldn't be irritating so and and that's the same for the squirrel as well because it was so thin it would be sewn on the outside so um so they, they all had a unique way of doing it, and it was for a reason. And I'm sure it was trial and error,
0: just like anything that we do. Next came the decorative stripping. On the puffin skin parka within the Alaska State Museum, rectangular strips of bare gutter esophagus are painted blue, and smaller rectangular strips of red, white, black, and yellow are embellished with the zigzag pattern.
4: De-haired caribou, about a quarter inch, and then from there they wrapped it in caribou hair. And then they would use the wool from the soldier's uniform. It might be a green or it might be a blue. And they may have dyed some of that. And, and then they would wrap that around. And then they would go back to caribou hair. And so that would all be on this quarter strip. Then from there, they would embroidery with caribou hair, decorative designs on that. My
0: presumption is that the women who made puffin skin parkas for the Russian-American company would not spend time embellishing them. After all, they weren't sure who would end up with their handiwork. Catherine Arndt elaborates.
3: The ones that people made for the company were going to be your utility garments. I mean, it's not going to be somebody's wedding garment. It's fine not going to be somebody's burial garment. It's, it's going to be a utility garment, and it... it I would think it would have to be functional because they knew that they were going to be, you know, getting it back from the company and they were going to use it. But, you know, it's probably stuff that got worn out. I don't know that the quality was any less, but it probably was at a utility grade
0: So a parka could even be shipped to another Russian outpost and put in a storehouse there, perhaps even shipped to Sitka, where it languished in a warehouse until the arrival of the Rasaka. That's one possible way that George Cook, that naval surgeon, acquired the puffin-skin parka. It's important to note that within the collection of the National Museum of Finland, there are examples of puffin-skin parkas unembellished that are attributed to Unangan makers. Yet this parka contains the beautiful stripping, and as far as Susie is concerned, this is a hallmark of Alutik garments. Every piece that we have seen has had embellishments on it.
4: Nothing has been plain at all. So that's why I'm saying the pride and... that they took in each piece, you know, it, it meant something. It was survival in a sense, but by the same token, it was, this is what, you know, I have made for my family, or this is
0: part of who I am. Could it be that this parka is indeed alutic? Patrick Saltonstall, curator of the alutic museum, notes that Kodiak was known for its embroidery.
2: Yeah, Kodiak was famous for its sewing. The alutic were well, well known. That was their that's what they were known for. You know, the Aleutians, people were famous for the basketry, um, grass baskets, and the Tlingit were known for their spruce root basket, but the Aleutic were known for their embroidery.
0: But without further study, Ellen Carley cautions making any firm statements about the possible origin of this parka.
2: I think this is a difficult thing to say exactly where it came from without maybe looking more at the stylistic sorts of things, the constructions of the seams, the stitching, the design patterns, like those are more likely to be the things that give you the attribution rather than simply the material.
0: Additionally, we can't say for sure that this puffinskin skin parka was part of the required work of Alutic or Unangan women because of the late date that it was collected. By 1867, life had markedly improved for the Alutic and Unangan people. Russia started shipping goods east instead of west. Even though this meant that ships had to travel all the way around the world to arrive in Alaska, it was still a quicker journey than going overland across Siberia and then by boat across the Bering Sea. Moreover, a trade deal was negotiated with the Hudson's Bay Company, who had much easier access to goods. Finally, accounts like that of Father Gideon caught the attention of Russian officials back in St. Petersburg. When Alexander Baranov was replaced as manager of the Russian-American Company, henceforth educated naval captains directed the colonies. Women started to be paid for the parkas that they created. Moreover, the Russians recognized that without the Alutik and Unangan, they were mostly helpless.
3: They knew that they relied on on the Alutiiq and Unangan people to to keep the colonies going. Um, you know, just they, they were the basis of the economy, and they were concerned that the people were dying out, and so they were they were paying more attention to making sure that they got enough to thrive, and they were also worried about them losing their skills, um, their specific subsistence. Skills, And so they actually were starting to curtail how many people they were having go to school during the times of year when they should be out learning their subsistence skills. So Native people were still the basis of the economy, but the company was trying to make sure that they didn't killed the goose that laid the golden egg.
0: As to how the parka ended up in Sitka, there are several possibilities. I mentioned that it might have been sent to a Russian storehouse in Sitka, and Cook acquired it there. Kathy Arndt mentions the possibility that it had been in the museum in Sitka. Some of the
3: chief managers actually collected things for mu- the museum, the Sitka museum. Um, so they cl- collected examples of things. And, and I understand that the museum was looted when... Uh, once the Americans
0: took over. Susie Malutin wonders if an Alutic woman living in Sitka could have made it.
4: Now, it's very possible that one of the women from here may have married someone and then moved to that area and, and made a parka. It's very possible.
0: There were Unangan and Alutic people living in Sitka in 1867. George Cook could also have purchased it from the native market in Sitka. In fact, we know that birdskin parkas were for sale when the Rasaka arrived in Sitka, based on the account of Andrew Alexander Blair. He was a midshipman aboard the USS Rosaka. Blair went to the market in Sitka and reported, quote, We went up to a shanty called the market and saw a great many Eskimo curiosities, a shirt made of duck skins, one of caribou, a great many harpoons, bow and arrows, etc. You hear that? A shirt made of duck skins. Cook might have purchased it directly from the Unangan woman who made it. And if this is the case, this woman could have witnessed the official ceremony in which Alaska was transferred from Russia to the United States. Here is a newspaper account of that very ceremony. An important day. Today, October 18th, General Rousseau arrived in the United States steamer Ossipee with the Russian commissioners, who immediately upon landing proceeded to the governor's residence and made the necessary preparations to receive the territory. It was an unusually fine day. Our American vessels of war, consisting of the Rusaka and Jamestown, were decked with colors. At 3 p.m., the Ossipee thundered forth the salutes to the Russian flag, which was floating over the governor's residence. These were quickly answered from the guns ashore, whose echo resounded over the mountain glen, as if to speak the tidings of the last hour when the imperial banner shall have waved its last. The star-spangled flag of freedom was all ready to wave its glorious folds o'er the heads of impatient spectators, and at 3 p.m., the Russian flag was hauled down, and amidst the cheers of an admiring public, the banner we love so fondly and so well was fluttering in proud defiance to the mountain breeze. Our company F of the 9th Infantry escorted the officials of both nations to the scene of excitement. The Russian soldiers giving place to ours and the booming of the cannon spoke the tale of the last and the first, which reverberated o'er the hill and dell to house and wigwam. The Indians, 1,000 in number, were allowed directly to witness the scene, and in one short hour, the Russian monarchy had become a link to our glorious republic. That's it. Optimism surely oozes from this account. It was quite an acquisition for the United States, and it was a new page in Alaska's history without a doubt. While the ceremony served as a performance to seal the deal, there is something about it that really feels superficial. The men on board the Rosaka, the U.S. Army personnel who had recently arrived and fired those salutes, and the journalist who reported on the ceremony had such a limited sense as to where they were and who they were interacting with. They knew little about the Tlingit observing the ceremony or the Aleutic and Unangan people within the market. They poorly understood the economic system in which they arrived, the complex history of colonization on which they too would build. The Rosaka left Sitka on January twentieth, 1868. The outbreak of yellow fever had apparently run its course because Princess Maksutov, the wife of the last governor of Russian America, joined the crew on the journey back to San Francisco. Along with the highest ranking woman in Russian America, the puffin skin parka sailed south from Sitka, signaling a new era for Alaska and for the woman who created this extraordinary garment. It's of these women that Susie Malutin thinks when she sews today. For me, it's, it's the
4: remembrance of, of what they
0: survived with, what helped them survive, and what it took. I'm grateful for the assistance of Susie Maluton, Ellen Carley, Catherine Arndt, Patrick Saltenstall, Andrew Washburn, and Steve Henriksen for making this episode possible. Additional thanks goes to the Alaska Historical Commission, the Alaska State Office of History and Archaeology, the Alaska State Museum, Kodiak Public Broadcasting, the Baranoff Museum, Alutic Museum, Native Village of Afognak, and the Library of Congress's American Folklife Center. Thanks again for listening.